Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Dr. Glenn Doran, longtime chair of anthropology at Florida State University, has died. Dr. Doran was best known as lead archaeologist of the remarkable Windover Dig. All the organics, the bone tools, the antler tools, the, the dental tools, fabric materials, all that stuff would just disappear probably within you know, 30 or 40 years in normal circumstances. So it's, it's sort of like opening the window of time and seeing what is really there. We'll discuss the mermaids of Wikiwachi. They didn't fall into the job, they planned for it. They had visited the springs regularly as little girls and watched the shows with a sense of wonder. And talk about Miami's McFarlane Homestead Historic District. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Slipping through the glass of time. Surely this sweet sand will run out Florida archaeologist Glenn Doran died suddenly on Thursday, June 10th from a severe heart attack. Dr. Doran was lead archaeologist on the Windover Dig, which his peers called one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the world. He was former chair of the Anthropology Department at Florida State University, where he served on the faculty since 1980. The last time we spoke with Glenn Doran in an interview setting was in April 2019. Bits of that conversation were included in the Florida Frontiers television episode on the indigenous people of Florida. Other parts aired on this program in advance of the 2019 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium, where Dr. Doran was one of the featured speakers. Other portions of the interview have not been broadcast until now. Naturally, the conversation turned toward the remarkable Windover Dig. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely became a big part of my life. And it literally, as so often happens with archaeologists, started with a phone call. Uh, one of the landowners or the people who was working for you know, EKS called the university and said, do you have anybody who's interested in looking at this archaeological site? You know, we've got some human skeletal material down here. And they ultimately called the anthropology department and it just happened to be a perfect setup for me. You know, I was both an archaeologist and had a strong interest in skeletal material. So it was sort of like slid across the table on a golden platter. And, you know, I've often told people I'm the luckiest archaeologist you'll ever meet because everything just lined up perfectly. Not only, you know, a spectacular site, but a landowner who was interested in what was out there and had the simple question of, you know, what is it? What's going on? How old it is? And those were all things that, you know, just fell into place. And, you know, it was older than anybody guessed. And that's part of what makes, you know, Wendover, you know, very, very special. 
The initial discovery of ancient skeletons in North Brevard County was made in 1982 by a construction worker clearing away muck to build a new housing development. Glenn Doran said there were many challenges to excavating the site. Well, if you go to any little pond in central Florida and you've got a few alligators, a lot of mosquitoes and, you know, say four to five feet of water, and that's a good place to start with problems. Uh, so we, we worked on the, the little small sandy hammock next to it while we sorted out some ways of doing this. And again, EKS was instrumental in working with the contractors and uh, you know, Thompson Pump and Manufacturing out of Port Orange that said, we think we can dewater this enough to let you guys get in and excavate you know, what basically is the bottom of the pond. Uh, and it, it worked superbly. And there's only a handful of sites in this country where they've had to dewater places like that to allow the archaeologists to get in. So, you know, the water issue was, was one of the very first issues you had to overcome. The effort was worth it, though. 168 ancient human burials were discovered at Windover. The remarkably well-preserved remains were between 7,000 and 8,000 years old. We had gone down in the summer of 82 and had collected some of the material that they had fortunately placed into uh, buckets of water. And, you know, I looked at them and I said, you know, we really, we, we can't guess at how old this is. It really needs to be confirmed one way or the other. And I said, would, would you guys, EKS, be willing to pay for a couple of radiocarbon dates? And so they you know, thought about it very briefly and said, okay, you know, send the samples off. So we were working with beta analytic out of Coral Gables. And so we sent a sample down and the date came back, I think 7,210 years before present, basically 8,000 years old. Now, no archeologist wants to rely on a single date. So we went back to him and said, you know, if this date is accurate, this is gonna be a spectacular opportunity for science. Can we run another date? Can you pay for another radiocarbon date? And they said, okay, you know, go on and do it. And it came back within, you know, 150 years of the first one. So statistically, they were identical. And at that point, we knew that if we could figure out how to get the funding and how to control the water and how to deal with, you know, what was gonna be a large volume of, of wet material that you, you really can't let dry out, you know, it would be, you know, and it turns out to be, you know, truly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a lot of different researchers, and certainly for me. The anaerobic environment at Windover preserved more than skeletal remains. Ninety-one of the skulls contained intact brain matter. Tools and fabric were found, changing our perceptions of Paleo-Indian culture. Glenn Doran. There are two things that always come to mind, and I still occasionally hear somebody make a comment about it. They say, well, you know, earlier populations, say beyond, you know, 5,000 or 6,000, were probably, you know, hide-clad hunters and gatherers. And yes, they certainly were using, you know, deer hides particularly. But in fact, you know, Windover has a spectacular array of hand-woven fabrics. And in the typical site, you know, Mission San Luis, you know, Wakulla Springs, any of these places you want to go, usually the organic materials, the bone, the antler, the wood, the fabric materials just don't survive. So people have sort of ignored the fact that there's this whole world of organic inventory that was part and parcel of everyday life. If you were here 7,000, 8,000, you know, 10,000, 14,000. And that disappears in normal archeological sites. It's only where you have this, 
either unique set of really, really wet and saturated soils that stay wet, or in some desert sites out in the southwest and in the Atacama Basin where things go into a little rock shelter or a cave, and they just sit there and they preserve surprisingly well. So you get this incredible inventory that is very different from uh, what you see in most archaeological sites. And in fact, I think we have four bifaces or projectile points from Wendover. And that's really all that would be preserved in a normal archaeological site in Florida. All the organics, the bone tools, the antler tools, the, the dental tools, fabric materials, all that stuff would just disappear probably within you know, 30 or 40 years in normal circumstances. So it's, it's sort of like opening the window of time and seeing what is really there. The sheer quantity of human remains discovered at Wendover allowed archaeologists to learn more about how ancient Floridians treated each other and their medical practices. With respect to the human skeletal material, it, it does a couple of things. One is it's a really large sample, you know, with 168 individuals. It's, in fact, the largest sample we know from this time period, really anywhere in the, in the New World. So you get a lot better insight into a real population. And there are certainly some individuals who, you know, had to have a fair amount of, of fairly close attention and care to keep them alive. You know, some pretty massive bone infections, you know, you know running sores on the tibia, you know, lost foot, these sorts of things. And again, that sort of goes against the typical model of life was brutal and harsh. Well, they certainly didn't have the antibiotics that we do today, but they knew how to take care of people, and clearly they did. Research has continued on the Wendover remains and artifacts since the mid-1980s, with many new discoveries being made. Of course, we got you know, simple descriptive information on the, the bone and antler tools and how they were made. Uh, the wooden tools are in some ways kind of unique, and if you talk to people who are wood specialists, they can even tell you what part of the tree was being used. So you become much more rapidly aware that these folks were pretty sophisticated in terms of their choices, in terms of what to make, how to make, what species to use. Uh, we also get some information in terms of diet from actual bone chemistry and tooth chemistry. So without skeletal material, you're left with projectile points and pots, and it's a little hard to get at some of that kind of information. Uh, the fabrics, you know, are, are just uh, absolutely amazing. You know, that's one of the things that always blows people's mind that, you know, it is survived. And some of it's pretty darn sophisticated. Uh, we also have one of the earliest bottle gourds, Lagenaria cisararia, from anywhere north of Mexico. We know they're out there in other places, but again, they just disappear in the archaeological record. So this, the large size, the really tight dating, the diverse array of materials is, is pretty phenomenal. And actually one of the, the things that I most enjoy about archaeology and anthropology is you get to work with some really bright people. You know, some people who you know, have really good information and techniques with plant material, with animal material, with woodworking technology, with fabric manufacture. You know, other specialists who do bone chemistry, you know, a specialist in dental morphology. Uh, and getting into a little bit of genetics. So it's, it's not very one stream. It's got a lot of tendrils that go all over different disciplines, many of whom are not anthropologists. You know, we've worked with you know, biology departments, zoology departments, you know, uh, all sorts of things, really all over the country.
Dr. Doran said that although similar sites to Windover exist in Florida, they are more difficult to excavate due to federal laws that have been enacted since the Windover dig. We know there are other sites like this out there. So you have to have somebody who discovers the site and then makes the phone calls and says, we think this is interesting, are you interested? And uh, try to get somebody going. In fact, there is a site down in Sarasota County right now that people are working on. And it, I would describe it as pretty much a carbon copy of Windover, except it's off in the Gulf of Mexico. It's you know, a quarter mile off the coast. So the water table has come up, but we won't talk about climate change. And this is submerged, and it looks like it has the same sort of preservation. There's bone, there's some antler tools, there's wooden items that must be stakes that were holding the, the burials in place just like they were at Windover. So they're out there. And what one of the big changes is we have to work much more closely with the Native American communities. Uh, before we ever went into the field, we talked with you know, people at the Governor's Council on Indian Affairs, and they knew what we were doing, and we felt like we had a, a good working relationship with them. And in most places, as Native Americans have become, you know, more hooked into the anthropology community, we've found ways to work with them. So if, if a site like this was discovered in a terrestrial context, you know, we'd have to sit down with the representative of the interested communities and, and see what could be done. So it's, it's not a no-go, it's something that would take you know, some time and very careful uh, you know, and honest conversations with them. Florida archeologist Glenn Doran died suddenly on Thursday, June 10th from a severe heart attack. This interview was conducted in April, 2019. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Join us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, find discounted books on Florida history and culture, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. I wish I were a wiki-watching mermaid. Swimming in the wiki-watchy spring. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, Wikiwatchi is one of Florida's first major tourist attractions, and Riches is helping to document its history. A new exhibit recently opened in the Riches Digital Archiving site titled The Women of Wikiwatchee Springs State Park. Developed and curated by Rebecca Schwant in collaboration with the Friends of Wikiwatchee, under a grant from the Florida Humanities Council, the exhibit focuses on the individual stories of women who worked as mermaids from the 1950s through the 1970s. Ms. Schwant is uniquely qualified to organize and curate the exhibit. A public historian, she wrote her MA thesis on the women of Wikiwachi, viewing their performances as mermaids through the lens of labor history. The exhibit follows a similar trajectory, the origins of the roadside park, the heyday of mermaid shows, training and work conditions, the decline of roadside attractions, 
and its new life as a Florida State Park. The Humanities Council grant enabled Schwant to add significantly to her earlier work, including the collection of oral histories and images and memorabilia held in private collections. The vehicle for accessing this new material was a history harvest held at Wikiwatchee in fall 2019. Members of the Riches team worked with the Friends of Wikiwatchee and Ms. Schwant to organize the collection process, digitize the materials, and record the stories. The day-long affair was part family reunion, part work, and all fun. Former mermaids came to Wikiwachi with boxes of materials from their own collections. They identified each item, told stories while the items were scanned, and made appointments for longer oral histories, and talked, laughed, cried, and remembered. They represented several generations of mermaids, but they were all family. Most of the women interviewed grew up in the area and saw life as a mermaid as glamorous, if demanding, job. They didn't fall into the job. They planned for it. They had visited the springs regularly as little girls and watched the shows with a sense of wonder. As mermaids themselves, they lived the dream, but it was a dream that required rigorous training and long hours of performing. And yet, they made it all look easy. Most never fully separated themselves from the mermaid life, returning for reunions and even performing on occasion. Connie, I imagine those former mermaids had some great stories to tell. They did indeed. My favorite story was told by Shirley Hurge, the daughter of one of the mermaids in the mid-1950s, Jeannie Brooks. Brooks seemed an unlikely candidate for the life of a mermaid. While she was tall and beautiful, she worked in the restaurant at Wikiwachi and was the mother of four children. During World War II, she worked as a welder at McCloskey Shipyards in Tampa, a real Rosie the Riveter. She also drove a Caterpillar bulldozer at Wikiwachi and had the picture to prove it. But when invited to try out for the job of mermaid, she jumped at the chance. Herge, the oldest of the Brooks children, remembered coming to work with her mother and playing in the park while her mother performed. At age 85, Brooks wrote a memoir in which she observed, quote, my family thought I was liberated before anyone had even heard of women's liberation. Personal observation about her attitude toward life tells us a lot about these women. Glamorous entertainers, they were also women sure of themselves who mastered physically demanding performances that changed frequently. Perhaps most importantly, they supported one another. That became obvious in 1970 when the mermaids and park staff organized a strike against ABC, the park owners. The women of Wikiwachi juggled families, friendships, training, and performance, and made it look easy. And as you mentioned, Connie, in addition to recording oral histories, your team was also able to document artifacts and photographs associated with life as a Wikiwachi mermaid. Around mid-morning of the history harvest, those of us working the harvest had the opportunity to see the former mermaids as a family. A woman arrived with a box of memorabilia that had been entrusted to her family by the son of a former mermaid. Everyone in the room stopped what they were doing and remembered Florence McNabb. Some had worked with her, others just knew her story. 
Florence Gothberg McNabb had performed as a mermaid in the 1950s and was the supervisor of mermaids in 1963 when she and her son, five years old, were killed in an automobile accident that her husband and older son survived. Everyone stood around the box, carefully removing items and telling stories about Florence McNabb and her scuba diving pilot husband. I had a mer- my own mermaid moment a few weeks earlier, before the history harvest. In preparation for the harvest, we had met several times with the friends of Wikiwachi, some of whom are former mermaids, although I'm not sure that's a good term. I'm not sure you ever really stop being a mermaid. At the time in question, Hurricane Dorian was headed for Florida, and warnings were up throughout the state. UCF and other universities were closing, I was preparing to leave campus when I received the ultimate Florida email. It was a stay safe and best wishes message from a mermaid. You can view the news exhibit on the Riches site. Just Google in the women of Wikiwachi and you should be able to find the link. We have additional images of Wikiwachi. They are also among the most frequently viewed items in the Riches archive because who doesn't want to see a mermaid? Indeed. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. I'm gonna be a wiki-watchy mermaid. I'm gonna be a wiki-watchy mermaid. I'm gonna be a wiki-watchy mermaid today. This is Florida Frontiers. The Miami area's McFarlane Homestead Historic District is endangered. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's 11 to Save list highlights the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The McFarlane Homestead Historic District, located in Miami-Dade County, is featured on 2020's 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about the McFarlane Homestead Historic District. The McFarlane Homestead District was, historic district, uh, was designated in 1994 uh, to the National Register of Historic Places. However, its history, you know, really expands back, you know, much further than what the designation actually says. So uh, the period of development of significance would have been between 1926 and 1944. And although this community is officially located in Coral Gables, its history really dates back to the 19th century when Coconut Grove, which is uh, really one of the oldest inhabited places in Miami-Dade County, uh, was established on the west side of Coconut Grove. It became um, home to uh, Bahamian settlers, Black Bahamian settlers, who worked either with Henry Flagler's railroad or a hotel called the Peacock Inn at the particular time. And when Coral Gables was later developed in the 1920s, some of the settlers in the area were basically relocated by George Myrick over to what is now known as the McFarlane Homestead District. 
The property that makes up the McFarlane Homestead Historic District was once owned by a school teacher named Flora McFarlane, South Florida's first woman homesteader. George Merrick, the founder of Coral Gables, acquired 20 acres from Flora McFarlane that eventually became the McFarlane Homestead Historic District. Officially located in Coral Gables, the McFarlane Homestead Historic District is part of a larger community known as West Grove, located between Miami and Coral Gables. So the city of Coral Gables was a planned community uh, developed by George Merrick in 1925. Prior to its development, however, there were people, black people, living in this area of what was considered to be Coconut Grove. Merrick wanted Coral Gables to be a community only for uh, white residents actually purchased this portion of the McFarlane Homestead tract, which was opposite of, um, I guess, on the opposite side of what became the Florida East Coast Railroad. So the railroad basically split the main Coral Gables that we know today uh, with what is now known as the McFarlane Homestead District. And once he purchased that property, which was next door to West Grove, the historic Bahamian, uh, Afro-Bahamian community in Coconut Grove, those black settlers were relocated to the McFarlane Homestead District. The McFarlane Homestead Historic District includes numerous historic churches, such as St. Mary's Missionary Baptist, Greater St. Paul AME, Macedonia Missionary Baptist, and Christ Episcopal Church. The historic district also contains a few dozen wood-frame shotgun and bungalow-style vernacular houses many of them built by Bahamian and Haitian immigrants who settled there. Today, most of the historic buildings in the district are vulnerable to neglect, development, and gentrification. One of the challenges it has today is, as you know, South Florida is growing pretty significantly. Um, housing prices are continuing to increase, and this redevelopment is causing gentrification issues within this community. So a lot of its historic building stock is being uh, replaced with high-rise condos, uh, infill lofts, townhomes, things of that nature. And so that was one of the reasons that it was designated as a 2020 11 save property. Many of the vernacular homes in the McFarlane Homestead District have been passed down through generations, fostering a feeling of community among the residents. Local activists hope to maintain the irreplaceable historic fabric of the neighborhood through various preservation efforts. Ennis Davis. It has a very unique sense of place that is very different from the rest of Coral Gables. Um, the architecture there, the historic architecture, consists of bungalows and shotgun architecture. And, you know, shotgun homes are an Afrocentric architectural housing form that basically entered the U.S. Uh, through the transatlantic slave trade, through uh, other uh, areas that were set or occupied uh, during slavery, such as um, Haiti, as well as the Bahamas. And so uh, that architectural style entered Florida uh, through the transatlantic slave trade. And so this historic district is a visual legacy of the sense of place and um, vernacular housing style that developed during the 19th century. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.